Good morning. Good morning. How's everyone doing today? That's sensational. Okay. What? I'm sorry. I'm underdressed for the occasion. I'm tieless. But I am uh, wearing a bacon shirt underneath this. It says, that's appropriate. It says bacon always underneath it, which seems suitable for the day. Okay. We are continuing in our series entitled Believe. Um, I am filling in for Sam while he's out of town. (laughs) That was a good trick. (laughs) Your presence is horrifying. (laughs) I want you to know that. (laughs) So, um, So we'll continue and... uh, (laughs) <laughs> and you can open up to the book of Acts. <clears throat> Boo is um, in the midst of, of cleaning our house from top to bottom. She's in this kind of nesting uh, phase, you know, with our second baby on the way, uh, yet unnamed baby boy. Um, we've gone back and forth for so many names. This has absolutely nothing to do with my message, but she's not here. So uh, maybe a focus group. What do you think of Thaddeus? Right? Yeah. It sounds like a man's name. I thought, you know, just a big hairy lumberjack. Lee, you on board with this? Thaddeus. It's a biblical name, right? It's one of the disciples. Come on. All right, so um, she's, she's cleaning our house and organizing everything. And I tend to be a bit of a hoarder. Um, you know, notes that I've written, ones that we've exchanged uh, to one another, or essays, or sermons, or uh, stories, or whatever it may be, uh, worship songs. I have, a, I have a room filled with these things, and to my shame, it's not the most organized room in the world. Um, she got me a mandolin last year for Christmas, and so I went into this room, and I pulled out my binder of worship songs, and uh, the, the thing might as well not have any rings in it, because I've never used them. I just stuff it full of all these songs, their associated chords. I pulled them all out, set them before me, all these songs that I know and love. And, and I began to look at the chords for the mandolin and figure out how to play all these songs on this new instrument. And it was a wonderful time. But that binder, uh, we're almost at Christmas again. It has never left the den. Um, it's been in there the entirety of the year. Um, yeah, just papers strewn about haphazardly uh, in just the most chaotic manner possible. And Miles and her the other day were cleaning the house because he's, he's also nesting. And, um, and together they decided that we as a family could live without this binder. And uh, so they gathered everything together, put it in an, empties, uh, an, an empty Huggies box, right? Um, and they threw it away. <clears throat> and I know, I know, yeah. And I got home that night, which I get home about every night at around 9 o'clock, and I came into my house, and something didn't feel right. It's tell as soon as I walked through the door that something was amuck, and there was a disturbance in the force. Thank you. <laughs> That's wonderfully nerdy. <laughs> but expect nothing less. <laughs> And, and I, but I could sense it. It was in the air, you know. And, and so I, I was talking to her, and she said, you know, uh, the Huggies box in the trash, all your worship songs are in it. 
and, and an irrational panic came over me. And at once I leapt to my feet and ran to the trash and retrieved the Huggies box filled with all these worship songs. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? Um, because they decided that we could live without it, and they were fundamentally wrong. Uh, we cannot live without this. And, and so I took it to my laundry room, which is the room that I keep all this stuff. Because uh, we have a, an unnaturally sized laundry room. It's, it's, it's far too large. It's larger than my baby's bedroom. Who has a laundry room that big? Right? That's, that's insanity. Okay, so I went in there, and I have this old a steel file cabinet. It's just rusted to pieces. And, and I, I walked in there with the intention of finally putting this box away uh, for the first time in a year nearly. And I didn't quite make it that far. Once I saw the file cabinet, I became fascinated with its content. Uh, within that file cabinet... <laughs> Within that file cabinet are uh, my very first uh, notebooks that I, I frantically penned um, during the first reading of the Bible when I was 16 or 17 years old. And there with this book uh, set before me on a table and one of these notebooks, four or five of them all together, uh, compiled the volume, uh, I, I wrote down every question, uh, every conclusion, um, every insight, no matter how shallow or superficial, that leapt into my young mind at the time. And I pulled out one of these notebooks and uh, it, it happened to be, it happened to be this text. And it happened to be, uh, it happened to be a moment that I remember uh, more vividly than, than I should. Um, being a man of advanced years that I am. Um, it's, it's a passage that is uh, profoundly unnatural and otherworldly, perfect and pure, and even in a sense divine regarding belief and faith and what it looks like and what it should look like uh, for us. And, and it became the content of um, a talk that we had at Refuge. Um, and, and if you'll accept it, I would like to share it with you this morning uh, because I think that it's, it's time to do so. Um, so if you're already in the book of Acts, you can open up to chapter 14, and if you'll allow the notes of a 17-year-old that knew little about the world and less about the Bible to be our content this morning, then we'll begin with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Thank you for this time uh, that we're able to have together. Lord, this, this morning to gather uh, with our brothers, with our sisters, with our, with our Heavenly Father, to sit at your feet, to learn from you, to grow closer to you. I pray, God, that that's exactly what we would do this morning. I trust this time into your hands. I pray, God, that you would speak through your scriptures as you're always so faithful to do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, it was my senior year, and I was completing uh, my mandatory community service uh, for Upland High School's government or economics class, whatever it is, whichever class that is that makes you do that. Joe, do you remember which one it is? No, it's one of those two. I had the same teacher for both, so they melt together in my mind. 
um, and I decided to uh, go to the San Antonio Heights Community Sheriff's Satellite Station, the longest title of anything ever. Um, and <clears throat> I would be fielding calls for the sheriff in the area. The entirety of my 20 hours or so of community service, I didn't receive a single call or have a single visitor, which is really quite fantastic because I had no idea what I was doing. I had received no training, and I never actually saw the, the sheriff or any of the other volunteers the entire time I was there, with the exception of my grandma. <laughs> and at that time, she was nearly blind, and her memory was as bad as mine. Um, so we were, we were not the most helpful couple uh, to be guarding the community. Um, and so we would hang out together, and uh, she, would read, she would read the Inquirer, and I would read the Bible, right? <laughs> and this is what we would do. And after about an hour, we would exchange, right? <laughs> then she would get the Bible, and I would get, you know, that reliable reporting of <laughs> celebrity babies and botched surgeries in the Inquirer. It's really just super fascinating. Um, and on that really forgettable day, I read this, um, this remarkable passage. Let's begin in verse 8. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet, that the man jumped up, and began to walk. And, and here was a man that believed in nothing but, but human frailty and empty deities. Right? Here was a man that, that never for a moment had, had felt weight upon his legs, that had never uh, that had never worked or or ran or, or skipped or any of those things that we do that we take for granted constantly. You know, Miles was first learning to walk. It was the most remarkable thing to behold. And here was a man that was robbed of that in his childhood and had become a social outcast and pariah. And a million times he had called upon the gods of his countrymen and a million times his prayers had been unanswered. And, and, and he'd come to the conclusion that, that if there were gods, then, then they, were, they were cruel and, and, and they were heartless and, and they were worthless. And, and today he hears the voice of a stranger in the streets. He hears the voice of, of Paul. Um, and, and this man speaking about God in a way that he had never heard God spoken about, a man that seems to know God personally and intimately, that's talking about a God that cares about each one of us individually, a God that listens, a God that answers, a God that heals, a God that loves, and everything in him aches to believe in that God, though he can hardly bring himself to utter it out loud. Could such a God 
heal me? Could such a God care about someone as insignificant as me? A God so gracious, a God so accepting, a God so wonderful, a God so kind. And, and it's as if God in heaven hears this man's heart and, and calls out from the heavens, I am that God. And Paul hears the voice of God. And he says, stand to your feet and see what your faith in this God has accomplished this day. Because this is a God worth believing in. And the man jumps to his feet, overwhelmed with joy. A God worth believing in. And we continue the story in verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form and Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker and the priest of Zeus whose temple was just outside the city brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. The people of this town were like the people of most Towns and in their own mind, they didn't they didn't need a god, right? Like this man needed a god, so they didn't perceive to be in the presence of God the way this man knew that he was in the presence of God. And by the time they were shaken from their spiritual slumber, they were thrown into a just truly irrational confusion. And a great thing had happened, a miracle, and no one doubted it, right? No one could doubt that this man that they had seen day and night on the streets um, uh, had been uh, healed and that, that truly a God must be responsible for this. And so they, they looked at Barnabas and they said, Barnabas, you are Zeus in human form. And they looked at Paul and they said, Paul, you are, you are Hermes in human form. And, and, and I feel bad for Paul because really he's the one that's responsible for the miracle, right? But he gets Hermes, which stinks when the guy next to you that didn't do anything is called Zeus, right? And Zeus is like the father of gods. And they're like, oh, you're Zeus. And then Paul's like, oh, I'm Hermes. That's awesome. I'm the god that just talks a lot. That's really cool, I guess. Yeah. And so, uh, but, but they're thrown into this, this frenzy over these two men. And, 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 and commentators seem to think that maybe the primary reason for Barnabas being called Zeus is because he was a more imposing and impressive figure. And, you know, Paul, he historically is known to be, you know, kind of this oddly shaped, balding man. And, and so, like, ah, you're not Zeus. So <laughs> your buddy's much more Zeusy. Um, so he, they, he's a lesser god, but they, they, they bring out the priests and call out the bulls and, and, and let, let's slaughter these things and pay respect to these gods that are in our presence um, and, 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 and we want to honor them lest we anger them because we've already seen what they're capable of doing, right? And, and so in verse 14, uh, we, we see the continuation of the story. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes, rushed out into the crowd, and shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn 
from these worthless things to a living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. And in the past, he let all nations go their way, and yet he's not left you without testimony. He's shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food, fills your hearts with joy. And even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. I love how Paul reaches out to these people. He says, what are you doing? We're, we're men. We're not gods, right? If I had a nickel for every time I've had to explain that to someone. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, guys, relax. Just a man. <laughs> he's, he's saying, listen, we can tell you we can tell you about God. We came to proclaim God, but we are not gods. The, the, the one true living God has given you everything that you know and hold dear as a gift pointing you in one direction towards, towards his glorious presence. Right? Everything that, that you see in the world, all, all, all the, the righteousness and, and love and, and goodness is because a good and righteous and loving God created it all and, and he created you too. And daily he finds subtle ways to, his, uh, to express this love to you. But this day he has sent us to proclaim him clearly to you in the presence of you. And I love this case that Paul makes about God because all he really says is, listen guys, open up your eyes and look around. God is responsible for everything you see. You can't miss him. You can't miss him anywhere. I was reading this story Friday night. Um, I have to confess, it was this point that that really just broke me as I was studying this passage. Uh, in a series on belief, right, it would be easy to miss the fact that while we believe in God, we spend an awful lot of time ignoring all that he does. Um, every moment he is prepared with care and presented with perfection. This is our God. And we spend the majority of our lives just swallowing it all down like my bulldog uh, swallows down his supper. You know, without thought, or consideration, or any sort of appreciation. Um, just choking down the substance of it. And, and I sat there uh, on my, on my uh, porch right around midnight with my, my tobacco pipe filling the air with the fragrant aromas of glory, thinking about, thinking about all of this that is set before me, um, that I have inherited without labor and enjoy without consideration. We are so profoundly blessed. And we have done nothing 
to deserve it. It's a remarkable thing to think about. And you know what? The consideration of all that leads us to the point where we, we appreciate God more, of course. But the end of it is that it, that it helps us to see him everywhere and in everything. Because he is everywhere and, and he is working in everything. Paul says, none of this is an accident. It's always been him. It's always been him. Every day. In a million different ways before you open up your eyes to even greet the day. It's him. He is so good. That's my God. That's our God. Right? That's your God. And he says, and then the crowd just looks upon him and says, uh, okay, that's great, Hermes. We get it. We get it. God's really cool. You just really need to stop talking. And Zeus, how about you tell us how you want us to slaughter this bull for you? And we'll, we'll get that taken care of. All right, and and Paul and Barnabas just couldn't get through to these people, um, but pretty soon they they won't have to. In verse nineteen: Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over, and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And I close my Bible after reading this passage for the first time in that sheriff's satellite station. And the silence of uh, that room seemed to magnify the, the intensity of this story. And I remember just writing down really frantically all these questions um, that, that came to my mind. And I'm going to share uh, several of those questions with you this morning as we kind of make those the, the points of our, of our talk in a very strange, unusual, irregular fashion, which I've never done before, but such is the nature of these notes. Um, the first question that I wrote down is why did the town turn on them so quickly after worshiping them? Why did the town turn on them so quickly after worshiping them? And, and in my notes, I, I wrote quite a bit about um, the fickle nature of our feelings and this quest for human approval and, and why seeking it is such a frustrating and futile goal. Um, the crowd in a moment goes from exalting these men to executing them. It's, it's really bizarre to consider what what happened here, it doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense, but we spend so much of our lives trying to uh, win the, the love and approval of people, and trying to please everyone, and, and, and trying to be just accepted uh, by, by everyone. And, and, and you can have it in a moment, and you can lose it in the next, but, but never with God. He's not, he's not fickle. He, 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 his feelings towards you don't, don't fluctuate. Uh, why did Paul go back after being killed by these people? Right? 
Jewish stoning ceremonies usually culminated with two men lifting up a stone that only two men together could lift up and dropping it from a second-story building upon a man's head. That's how these ceremonies ended. Um, Paul, after this, he looked dead. They thought he was dead. Um, They dragged him outside of the city and left him for dead. Um, His friends gathered around him, it seems, just to mourn his death. It doesn't say that they they prayed around him there. Uh, This experience could be what he speaks about in 2 Corinthians, where he talks about being caught up to heaven, essentially, before his time. So why would he get up, turn around, and go back to these people that had just killed him? It doesn't make any sense to me. Was, did he go back to show them that they hadn't won? Was it, was it pride that brought him back? Was it determination? Was it compassion? And, and then I began to think, well, maybe, maybe he returned. Maybe he returned for those people that had believed for themselves moments before they witnessed the consequences of that faith. Maybe he returned to speak to that man that had just walked for the first time in his life to tell them that you will see great highs and lows and you won't always be skipping for joy. But what I can promise you is that you will have a God with you through every step that you take for the rest of your days. That this is a God worth believing in. It's a God that will never abandon us. How did people respond to him when he went back? It, It doesn't look like they tried to pick up where they left off. Maybe it was just terribly awkward when he went back. And, you know, here he is, just the bloody mess of a man walking down the streets and you know, people are like, oh, there's... Oh, look, there's that guy. There he, oh, he looked at us. Hey, Hermes, how you doing? Maybe it was... Maybe no one wanted to address the fact that here was a man that they had just killed that was standing before them. And maybe more than anything else, they were convinced at that moment that he really was a god. Or maybe, or maybe when they saw his, his face that had just suffered the blow of what can decidedly be called a boulder, dropped upon him from a second-story building. What they saw in that face was the heart of a God that loves us no matter what, that'll continue to reach out to us no matter what, a God that you can scorn and reject, a God that you can mutilate and cast asunder, a God that you can crucify, and a God that'll still love you. God that'll still cherish you. A God that'll still...
come back to you. Okay. Um, one more question before we get to the, the big one. Um, why didn't they use the whole God thing to their advantage? Am I the only one that thought about that when you're reading it? And the whole town clamors around them saying, let's stone these two guys. And they could have just easily said, you dare stone Zeus and Hermes? That's probably what I would have done. <laughs> you know that everyone would have instantly fallen on their faces and said, oh no, heaven forbid we would anger a god. And they would say, that's right. Now get out of here. And the crowd would immediately dissipate. It seems like the idea of lying to save their lives never entered into their mind. When naturally it would have been really the first thing that would have entered into our minds. Maybe just mine. I'm the only carnal one here. The idea of blaspheming God by putting themselves on the same level as him in order to merit another moment of existence was the height of insanity to them. And I think of Polycarp. Maybe some of you have read the story of Polycarp. I, I, I love to, to read these uh, stories of the fathers of the faith, these you know, glorious old men um, and the lives that they lived and their exploits. And here was a man, Polycarp, that, that was the last living uh, man to, to meet, to walk with, and be discipled by one of the apostles. He's the last man standing. He's the end of an era with, an era with his passing. And, and when he was brought before Caesar, and Caesar said, listen, all I'm asking you to do is just recant. Just say you're not a Christian, just for a moment. I don't care what you do after you leave here. Just for a moment, just give in. And, 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 and I won't throw you to the wild beasts in the Colosseum. Polycarp said, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And you have in Polycarp, and you have in Paul, and you have in Barnabas that this idea that, that our God is a God that's worth dying for. And, and that they had come to this point, that they, they had made this decision that, that they, they could die for God. Because every moment before that, they had discovered the reality, the, the truth that anchors our belief that our God is truly a God that is worth living for. And every moment, God had an opportunity to prove himself faithful. Every moment, God had an opportunity to prove himself loving. And you know what God did? He did exactly that. And they saw it, and they realized it, and they, they clung to it. And Paul would eventually say to the Philippian church, you know what, for me to live is Christ, and for me to die is gain. You know, if I'm going to continue on here, it'll be glorious to be able to serve you and to serve God. But you know what? That's nothing compared to the glory of actually being in the presence of God. I don't count my life as something precious that I'm going to blaspheme God. I'm going to bring shame to God by for a moment denying that he is every bit 
the God that he has proven himself to be. Okay, last question. Last question that I wrote down. You know what? As, as I sat in that room, there was one thing that I wrote down in those notes that I rediscovered going through that filing cabinet rather than cleaning that filing cabinet. There's one thing that I want to leave you with this morning. The implications of this question have impacted the last 14 years or so of my life. And so here it is. When did people stop mistaking us for gods? That might be a really dangerous question to ask in church, and I realize that. But when did people stop mistaking us for gods? Because, you know, it was a mistake, but it's, it's not one that we make today. Right? I've never met a person, and after our encounter, walked away and, and thought, oh, I'm just... That dude was a god. I'm 100% sure that I just had brunch with, I just had eggs benedict with a god, right? That's never happened. That's never happened in my life. And when did that stop? And why did that stop? You know, Paul and Barnabas, they had a really hard time convincing everyone that, that they were just human, and that's, that blows my mind because everyone, just about everyone I meet is so human, with the exception of maybe Beth, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's kind of sad, right? I think that's really sad. But these people in this, in this town thought that these two men were more than human, not because they were stupid and primitive, right? not because they lived in this world that, that didn't have smartphones and so, of course, they didn't know anything. They thought that these people were more than human because they saw them do things that humans didn't do. Right? They, they looked at them and they said, yeah, you're something else. You're something different because I'm a human and I know humans and you guys aren't like us. And no one mistakes us for gods because we act like humans. Right? I was... um, Right around the time that I read this passage, I'd been a Christian for about eight months, and I remember um, being at my old uh, A-frame uh, Baptist church and talking to uh, my my pastor and um, a good old country boy, never missed a Sunday in his uh, cowboy boots and tailored suits and all of that, and I, I and I love him dearly, I really do. But he said something that day uh, that that has haunted me, really, for the entirety of my Christianity. Um, we were 
we were talking that morning about uh, Christianity and and about you know purpose and our lives and all of that and and uh, only being a Christian for about eight months perspective was something that that maybe I lacked to a degree. And he was like, "So what do you want to do, buddy?" And he always called me buddy because I played guitar for the church and I had thick black glasses, so he dubbed me Buddy Holly. Um, so uh, he was like, "What do you want to do, buddy?" And I was like. I want to just, you know, straight up change the world. And, and he was like, all right. And he, but, you know, um, before that, just eight months before that, I, I had reached a point where, where I was just, I was, I was really over life. And I don't know if you've ever been there, right, where you've just been to the point where you're like, I'm just over life, just all of it, just over it. I'm, I'm done with it. It's, it's too much. And, and life was just filled with pain and hurt and suffering. And there was no point to it. There was no purpose to it. Uh, there was no direction in it. And, 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 then, and then Jesus... And there is this amazing thing that happened, right? That this thing that I was so fundamentally over became this thing that I was so profoundly filled with. That all of the sudden, it was as if this floodgate was opened and, and, and there was so much hope and there was so much love and there was so much joy and, and there was so much life and and I, I I just I wanted nothing more than to share that with the world, and I just started talking to him and saying, "This is what we need to do. We just need to share this with the world, this love and this life and this 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 is this is." And and he looked at me and he smiled, this this knowing smile, and he said, "Oh, young faith." And then he put a, a single hand on my shoulder, heavy with gold jewelry. <laughs> and, and he said, when you're young, you think you can change the world. And soon you'll lose that and become just like the rest of us. And I had never heard anything in in my young Christianity, so profoundly horrifying. And that warning has echoed in my mind over the last decade. We have allowed something to change in our midst. We've become far too comfortable reading a book about extraordinary exploits accomplished by ordinary men and women just like us uh, without thinking that somehow the same isn't expected of us, can't be achieved by us, or should even be imagined by us. And we couldn't be more wrong. We cannot be more wrong. 
You know, uh, Paul began his defense by saying, we're men, we're humans, just like you, right? And, and nothing more and nothing less. And this, this is how men and women, this is how humans called of God should live, right? This is the life of faith. This is what it looks like to believe. And these people were mistaken. Right? Paul and Barnabas weren't gods, but but they weren't that far off with their mistake. Right? Not as far off as maybe we assume when we immediately read the passage. Paul and Barnabas weren't gods, but they knew the true and living God. Right? And, and they were called to represent him, and they did so in a way that was so clear that they could be mistaken for him. And isn't that a wonderful thing to consider? That you would represent God so perfectly that people would mistake you for him. And say, I always get the two of you confused. Gosh, you're either Sam or you're Jesus. I don't know. You're so similar, right? That's a wonderful mistake for people to make. Listen, it's easy to be human. It's easy to be human. You win that medal like, you know, T-ball, just by showing up. Right? There you go. Y'all get it. And I get it too. We're all very human. Right? We, and we can live our lives like that. And we can love like humans love. And we can talk like humans talk. And we can care for one another like humans care for one another, or we could do something different. We can do something unnatural. We can do something that is divine at its core. And we can love in a way that God loves and let the world behold it and be perplexed by it because it's, it's completely unnatural. A love that's, that's pure and pervasive, a love that doesn't have limitations or any restrictions. We can talk like God talks and encourage one another and exhort each other. And we can care for one another like, like only God cares in a way that's specific and, and individualistic. And, and we can stop being just human in those moments. And we can allow the presence of God to shine in and through us. Listen, I want to end this morning with, with a challenge. <clears throat> when that old country pastor walked away from that conversation, he walked away to take the pulpit. It was actually before his message. As scary as that is to think about in some senses. In his eyes... It was his responsibility to talk. It was our responsibility to listen. And then it was all of our responsibilities to leave knowing that we did the Christian thing. That, that we've, we did church and that we're okay. But that's not okay. That's not okay. I don't know when it became okay, but it did somewhere along the line. 
that we decided that that was it. That it's some guy's responsibility to get up here and say something. That it's our responsibility to sit uh, out in the crowd and listen to something. And then it's all of our responsibility, really, uh, according to Scripture, to do an awful lot more than that. And I can't tell you what that means for you. I'm not going to. I'm not going to try to. Because I don't think I need to. I think that each and every person here has had to, for far too long, suppress something in their soul that they knew that God wanted to accomplish in and through them. And I think that all of us have, have lived under this, this heavy hand upon our shoulder saying, ah, just be like the rest of us. Just knock it off. And listen, I want to challenge us, each and every one of us, to cast the heavy hand off our shoulder and say, you know what, this, this is what God has called us to do. If you believe in God, then this is the mantle that has fallen to you. And you already know it because it's already been a part of you. He's created you to do just that. To enrich the community around you. To impact the life of someone specific set before you. To change the very nature and fabric of this world. And don't say that's ridiculous. Don't say that's silly. That's biblical. Because we serve a God that does that with humans. Because Paul was very human. And Barnabas was very human. And you and I are human. We end up spending our lives burying this voice inside of us that's shouting to be heard, that's, that's aching to impact and accepting something that is completely unscriptural, something that is completely unbiblical. And we pretend like this calling doesn't burden us. It doesn't bother us. But it does. It does. And it will. Because that thing inside you is the beating heart of a living God that wants to do more in this world than we can ever ask, than we can ever think, than we can ever imagine. And he wants to use ordinary people to do it. Can you pray with me? Let's pray. Let's gracious Heavenly Father. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that we discover in it. The fact that it confronts us with the delusions that are forced upon us. Lord, I pray that each and every person here see, quiet their heart. hear your voice and that they wouldn't suppress it 
They would believe in it. They would believe in you to accomplish it. You want to move mountains, God. And you want to use people to do that. I pray that we would be those people. Lord, that nothing would hold you back from accomplishing what you want to accomplish. We would get to be a part of it. We would get to confound this world by it. That they would see God in their midst. Lived out by people that simply believe in him and don't want to settle for anything less than him. Thank you, Lord. Pray your blessing upon us this morning. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.